Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Good morning. Welcome to SawCast number 42. This production of SawCast is brought to you courtesy of Jocko Willink Productions and his technical staff with Kerry Helton joining us today. My name is John Stryker-Meyer. I'll be your host today. And this is part of our ongoing series of interviews for SOGCAST about the secret war in Vietnam. Today, I have the honor of introducing not only a good friend, but just one fine recon man, Tony Bandiera Jr. Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. My honor indeed, sir. And um, as with our stories about SOG, there's always a beginning. What was your beginning? Where did you grow up first? And how did you get to that point where someday... I want to join the Army. Well, truth is, well, I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, basically, and a little bit in the Panhandle of Texas before that. But uh, I, I didn't want to go in the Army. My father and I, when I was a senior in high school, he was always showing me a newspaper about what was going on in Vietnam. Right. And that was the last place I wanted to be. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> of course. Yeah. But I have two cousins and a good friend, and they hounded me to said let's go in the army and be paratroopers and I said there's no way in the hell I'm going to jump out of an airplane it's just not going to happen so they had back then the buddy the enlisted as a, the, the buddy program you go in oh, and yeah, stay with it so we immediately went in and the first person that didn't get to be part of the buddy system was me and so I went off, and then I went to jump school, and from jump school to the 82nd. And from the 82nd, uh, I was assigned to, I think, January, the beginning of January 66. I was assigned to the 101st Airborne Division. Oh. And it, it, to me, it was kind of an honor to say I get to be a screaming eagle one day. I get to wear the patch. And, Absolutely, and, because by that time, we just the movie The Longest Day had come out. Exactly. And the well, during that time when we got to Camp Alpha, Camp Alpha, there was uh, the first cab took a terrible beating in Oshawa Valley. And um, can we do a time frame on that, please? Like what year? What time? That happened. The, the I think the end of '64, the battle. Is we had uh, the Battle of Idrang Valley. Idrang Valley is what I meant. That was '65. Yes, right. sir. That's okay. That's why I get paid the big bucks. Yeah. Well, I told you I had a bad memory. <laughs> so, no, he's not Idrang Valley. Yes, sir. So they took a terrible beating, and they came over to a group of us that flew in together from the United States to tell us that we're changing your orders. You can go straight to the first cab. It was an immediate letdown for all of us to think we had to go to the CAV, not be part of the 101st. Sure. Because of the great history of the 101st. So anyway, we, being military guys, we, we did what we were told and got assigned to different units when we got to the CAV. And it was a surprisingly good experience for me. I was very excited to, to feel relieved and acclimated pretty quick and uh, uh, had to have 
scared to death many times when we'd go out, and I'd go out as an engineer with some of the infantry teams from 1st to the 9th. And they had a great helicopter assault team uh, unit, which was called the 1st to the 9th of the 1st Cav. And it was really nice to serve with those guys. It was, to me, like a next level. And that was the only, I think the 1st Brigade of the 1st Cav was only airborne. Most of everybody's airborne. And that's what I wanted to be, to make sure I could stay part of that. So the Ijang Valley battle was uh, November of 65, so you got there in January of 66. Correct. Okay, and then they still had some god-awful combat. Yes. Because that AO, on below, or we, I don't know if the intel knew it or not, but that was a major base for the NVA mm-hmm. of some sort. Mm-hmm. I forget the exact nomenclature, but there were a whole lot of those commie dogs there. Mm-hmm. And that's what the first battles were with the, that they made the movie from. The We were soldiers once we were young. Right. And that's just a phenomenal, relatively accurate movie. The, the movie was phenomenal. It was accurate. It, it, it depicted some very sad things that how really unprepared those guys were going into. Most of it was their first time out. Absolutely. And, and they didn't know what the intel about the NVA had no the clue. strength. Yeah. They had no clue. And to the NVA, later to find out, to them it was a picnic. They were thrilled. It was the first <laughs> time anybody entered their valley. They were like green soldiers. So they inflicted many casualties, which is pretty sad for, for the U.S. Army, U.S., I mean for the CAV. And um, uh, we moved in and out uh, to the valley a little bit from time to time. After, of course, and because there was a huge lesson learned about insertions, approaches, and uh, had better intel, which is, of course, we know is the most important thing to have. Absolutely. And so <clears throat> then after a while, they transferred me to S2, uh, engineer uh, battalion. And then from there, they took me with a young captain over to Bong Song to an 18 and that was my first true introduction to special forces and we were there almost three months and in those three months I felt like I was in a total different world and I was there was no sergeant this major that captain this whatever it was when I first got there I called everybody by the sergeant whatever the name was and the very first thing I got was a lesson is don't call me. My name's Bill. My name's Jim. My name's John. Yeah. Call me by my first name. So I was immediately at ease, totally at ease. Sure. And the first couple of weeks went by, and I was watching the, the teams take out their indigs to do night recon and night patrols. And they came back one day, and the next day they said, why don't you come and go with us? And I said, hell no, <laughs> where I'm safe in camp. <laughs> so long story short, of course, they ultimately talked me into it. I had to find out what it was like. And when I found out what it was like, I really enjoyed it. I felt safe. I felt like I was in a – I felt like I was protected no matter what. And they what, saw a lot better planning there. It, it was a different world, like I said. I mean, I, I went from, I don't want to say it like this, but from the B team to a total A team. It was sure. ridiculous how well-informed they were. 
So before we go too far into that, when you're in those early months, were you going in with teams from the first cab on the t- in the targets? And as if you did, what was your MOS at that at that point? No, it's twelve B. Oh, twelve B artillery. Uh, no uh, mortars. No uh, Not engineer back then. Twelve B. Twelve B. Okay, was engineer. And infantryman back then was 11B. Yeah. And then Special Forces and Weapons Man, of course, sure. 11B, 4PS. Right. And all kind of different. And they changed <laughs> over a period of time, as you're well aware. So, uh, no, I would go out with different platoons, uh, whichever I was assigned to at the time, depending on the nature of the mission, uh, nature of the patrol, whatever whatever they had to do that required an engineer, then I was brought along. You carry a lot of claymores? I carried a few. <laughs> so, not a lot, but I carried two, to be honest with you. Yes. So, um, I, mean, I, I ran those for a while and came back, and like I said, they put me in S2, and S2, everything kind of slowed down quite a bit for me. So S2 in the military is the Intel, Intel. Is the Intel branch. Right, and I enjoyed that. So from there, then it was over to Bongsong, and I truly, truly enjoyed that. That was, I want to say that's where the catalyst of, what stuck with me to make me always consider if I wanted to stay in the military to go into special forces. But I still had this aching desire to be a, a helicopter pilot. And when I was a few months before ETS at Bragg in the 82nd, recruiter came over and asked me, he said, you have to leave in a few months, but we'd like for you to stay. Is there anything special? So that this you is need? after Vietnam now? Yeah, this is after my first tour. Okay. So... I said, no, I, th- I think it's time for me to go home. He said, anything at all? I said, I want to be a helicopter pilot. He said, okay. So I took the battery test and went to take the physical. And I was in truly good condition. I failed the physical. It was a eye physical that I failed. If you had an astigmatism, you weren't accepted. Of course, six months later, they changed that. Of course. So, but by six <laughs> months later, I was already deep into Special Forces training. He talked me into. He didn't talk me into it. I asked him, since he told me I failed. He says, "Anything else?" I said, "Special Forces." And he hesitated. He said, "That's pretty serious." I said, "Well, okay, I'll go home." He said, "Well, we'll have you take the test." And I took the test, and he called me up. And about two weeks later, and I thought I was going to be going home. He said, "Sergeant Manier, I've got good news for you." He said, "Well, I got bad news too." Good news is you've been accepted, but you have to start in two weeks. You say you can't go home for your 30 days. And I said, well, it was great. I didn't need to go home. I was happy to hear that. And from there, I went into training group. Training group was amazing. It was really amazing. And I'm sure you remember your days through training group. But probably one of the most important things that I got out of that was the quality of instruction. The instructors we had were amazing. It wasn't like going through basic training, AIT, or any other part of the regular Army schools. And as I was going through, I was enjoying, I I wanted to be a weapons man, so of course I was taking weapons courses. And the, I think the one course that really kind of stumped a lot of people, and it killed me, was the compass course, the the land land navigation. Oh my God, I, I did everything else great. And so when I came close to take our final test, and I went over and talked to the NCO in charge, and I told him, I said, 
I don't think I'm going to make it. He said, why not? He said, look, he licked my records. He said, you're good. He said, you're good to go. I said, no, I, I don't understand this. I really don't. So he told me, he said, for the next few days, you'll come and see me at a certain time at a certain place, and I'm going to tutor you. Well, okay. I sure. went, and in any other part of the military, that would never happen. No. And if it wasn't for him, I would have never made it through. But by the time he, we were through with the tutoring, I understood it very well. So this is by now. This is at the end of '67 or early '68. By now you're in the MOS training. No, this. Oh, no, you're still phase one. No, no, I was finished. I, we were in for land nav. Right, and we <clears> were going to. What was next for me was phase three, so we had one, two, and three. And so after three, I think we finished. I'm trying to remember. Pretty sad when you can't remember when you graduate from Groot. But I think it was um, August of 67, somewhere around there. Okay. Because you, you, when you graduated, then you went to which group? Well, as soon as I graduated, I didn't go to a group. Right. So <laughs> That's <laughs> so what I mean. The group. <laughs> so, um, I got orders to go to the 5th, and it, I got a little bit of relief time, like 10 days. So I went home for 10 days and came back and um, got over to, um, I can't, um, Were you fly into Cameron Bay? Cameron Bay, thank yeah. you very much. Sure. So in Cameron, uh, when we were offloading and they brought the, all of us over to a certain tent, they had a, a clipboard and this uh, NCO, or this actually the second lieutenant, said I need these names to go over here, then I need the rest of you to go over there. Well, I was in the short list, and so they took six of us out of, I think, about 25, 30 maybe. And from there, they said, you're going, you're going to go to CNC North, CNC South, CNC Central. Oh, no kidding. And I had no clue what CNC meant. Sure. I, I didn't even know what I was in for. And you didn't have any country training. And did you land in Vietnam, they're there to greet you like that. Just like that. But Whoa. I had in kind of the prior service, of course, because of the first calf. So I'd already been in country. I knew all that. I had no clue about what I was going to do. I thought I was either going to, I thought I was going to an A team. Sure. That's what we all thought. So, we left training group. Exactly. I mean, yeah. that, that's, all, that's what we <laughs> wanted, right? Yeah. I didn't know first damn thing about what SOG was, what it meant, anything. So... They gave us a really quick class and uh, quick, short explanations, which didn't mean anything. But when we finally got over to two of us, ended up going over to uh, being picked up at the airport. No, actually, they flew us in really close to in a helicopter over to Da Nang. Into Da Nang. And from Da Nang, we were picked up. So you never got the in-country training for the regular SF then? No. No kidding? No. Of course, you were a seasoned vet by that time. By, you had by, a tour of duty under your belt. And You know, to be honest with you, that had a lot to do with the bearing of how well I was treated going through group because I was already an NCO and I already had prior training. And, you know, you, I was alert and aware of what— And you had your first doing. CAV combat patch in the right <laughs> arm. Did. That had a lot of weight and, back then, and absolutely. I, and I got to put my airborne tab above the cat. Indeed. <laughs> that yeah. meant a lot to me. <laughs> you know, it's funny how, when we were young, how much, how important that, that airborne tab is. Oh, yeah. 
but then later on you realize that every morning tab's great, but there's nothing like a special forcing tab for no, us. No, that's true. But the so, other tab gets you fifty-five dollars a month. Absolutely, that's a lot so of money back me. then. That, that was huge. <laughs> I got sixty-eight dollars a month when I first went in. Is so, that right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So anyway, uh, he got over to uh, the compound, and uh, Colonel Welch was there to introduce himself to new people coming in. Colonel Warren. No, Jack Warren. For Jack Warren. Yes, that's, that's right. Yeah, Colonel Jack Warren. What a great guy. Oh, yeah. What a wonderful man. Uh, the, the kind of SF officer that you kind of would really want to serve with. He, he truly cared about his men, and he knew it really quick. I think he went to the officer's club a couple of times. He lived in the NCO club. He caused <laughs> more fights, more crap than anybody else in the club. But he was, like to us, was an icon. And so when you come in, do you get the briefing first? We sign your NDA and all that? Yes. And that all happened at Da Nang? Or over to, they still had the CNC compound near the air base first. You, some of us went there first. And then we, in your case, because you were assigned FOB4, which right. was Da Nang. It was Da Nang. So, and that's where you met Colonel Warren, or did you meet him at the briefing? No, met him at the briefing when we got into okay. the, to the camp. Sure. So um, we pulled into the camp, and we went – they told us to take a break for a little while. We took a break and just looked around. And you know what it was like if you're at the back where the hooches were. This is the South China Sea. It's a beautiful blue sea. And you think, God, this is going to be paradise. You know? and maybe one strand of barbed wire. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe one strand of barbed wire. So for time. our listeners, at FOB4, it was South Da Nang, up against Marble Mountain. Yes. And when you came into the base, there was a helicopter pad. Then there was a head, headquarters. As you went down, mm-hmm. heading east towards the South China Sea. Right. Went past the club, mess hall. Yeah. And then there was recon company. <laughs> and the urinal, don't forget that. Indeed, a couple more than one. <laughs> yeah. And then you came down to the beach, and the security was a little thin back then. I and never noticed maybe, any. Yeah, right. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> and so this is 68 now. This is '68. Clearly, so you so you're there. You get um, so talk about the briefing with Jack Warren because that's always that moment in time. You get your top secret briefing. Welcome to the secret war briefing. Uh, yeah, I was. Uh, I thought, well, you know, I think they've got the wrong person. I think they didn't really mean to call my name out to be here. You tell me all these <laughs> things that they do and how classified they are and and how. There is a certain deniability and plausible deniability about this and that and. That. We couldn't discuss with anybody. We couldn't discuss with any superior officer to us. Or your that, mom or your the, girlfriend. Uh, the family, nobody. Yeah. It, it just, that was just how it was. You know very well how important yes, that was. So that meant a lot to me to, to realize that, I don't know how the FBI cleared me for, for clearance, but they did. And <laughs> I, uh, I was still a kid, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I was young, and I, I felt physically in great shape. I was ready for everything. I prepared myself in advance. And having that first tour meant a ton to me when I was there. So after that briefing and how they laid out what the, the, the missions could be and the variety of missions that existed. And you sold a map that says Vietnam. And then there's Laos with all the target boxes. Uh, yeah, when you see that map, you're sitting trying to figure out 
what's, what's that for? <laughs> Why do they like, have all those zeros and yeah, squares and all yeah, the, WTF? Uh, yeah, and they had uh, uh, the code names to each one of these right. missions, these 10 square miles that we would operate in. Uh, so it was pretty exciting. I mean, I still, oh, yeah. I still felt really out of place. I don't know why. I just I didn't I didn't feel like I fit in or was going to be good enough to be able to live up to these guys. But it didn't take me long to look around and realize that we were all the same age. We all had the same training, and what was important was the leadership inside the compound. What was important was each other, how everybody covered each other's back, and how much we learned from each other. Uh, we learn more from the clubhouse than during the training. <laughs> we got more intel from clubhouse and house twenty two. Sure. Well, that too. <laughs> so, and house twenty two was a safe house, by the way, in Da Nang. Yeah, it was definitely a safe house. Yes. So, uh, we'll let it be at that. Yes, I will. <laughs> um, so I began to feel more comfortable after I got to know a few people, <clears throat> and uh, then I really got sort of close to uh, Sergeant Major Charlie Vickers. Oh yeah, and he was. Really a wonderful guy. And for some reason, odd reason, he took me in under his wing, and he would tell me certain things about some of the different players there, some of the different teams and operators. And he said, you really want to learn a lot. You stick to the guys that have been so many times and so many missions to talk to them. And I, I did. I, I picked everybody's brain. And, of course, when you get assigned a mission, the first thing you do is you you really don't prepare the team. You go in to talk and study. We tell the team, of course, we're going to go. But you go in to talk, and you spend a lot of time there, and you read everything you can about your your AO. And you, if if there's stuff in the intel folder. It, yes, exactly. Yeah. And that was kind of scary in some of them because there wasn't. But if, if there was, you could lean on the person who had been there before you. If they... You could ask around. Right, if they were still alive. Clubhouse Intel. <laughs> that's where we got Indeed. it. Indeed. <laughs> and so, and that stuff was very important. Absolutely. I mean, it meant a lot to the nature of our mission. And uh, let us know where the little traps to look for and what to look for and uh, different smells in different areas and what certain smells meant. And how you listened. And, and being... I think most important one thing is thank you for saying that because I think what I learned from everybody was listening was the most vital instinct that you could have. You, if you were a good listener, you had a really, really good chance of surviving. If you listened to every little thing, it, when it hit the fan, you knew exactly what to do. You didn't have any... You didn't have any doubts. You didn't have any questions. You just did it automatically. Yeah, because once you're in the mm -hmm. jungle, that jungle has its own life rhythm. Exactly. And when you stop, then the jungle rhythm comes back. Exactly. If it doesn't come back, be advised the shit's about you, to hit the fan. You're about to, that's right. Indeed. The, so Charlie's talking to you, and at one point you get assigned your first team. So by now we're talking the summer of 68. Exactly. Okay. Now assigned to RTSP. Okay, and your one I, zero was? It was Larry Trimble, <laughs> one of the most wonderful human beings you'll ever meet, not to mention a fabulous soldier. A.K.A. the gambler. The and, gambler. And exactly. we do have a sarcastic interview with Larry. 
I coming up. Sawcast number five. Ah, I gotta listen to that. Absolutely. But but Larry was, um, he he was quiet, and he he had a lot to say sometimes by not saying anything. Uh, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Oh yeah. <laughs> so Larry, when we started getting acclimated to each other, and we ran a mission. When we came back. So your first mission was Larry was what? What kind of mission was it? Where do you remember? It was. Uh, we were looking at traffic on the Mekong Delta, or the Delta coming up from from south on the on the western side western of side. Lay, uh, Layouts. Right, exactly. You're that far out. Okay. Yeah. So that was the first one. Uh, I think I shouldn't say this, but. I think we walked around the same place like three times before we realized, <laughs> hey, I think we're lost. <laughs> so, Come back. He's done some, a little more training with the navigation so, skills. <laughs> so we sat down and talked about it. And if it wasn't for our, our indig, yeah, which for everybody who loves their indig, every team loves their indig. If they didn't, they removed them. But for me to be assigned to the only former North Vietnamese soldiers, it really made me nervous the first few missions. Oh, sure. So Larry said, just relax. Everything's going to be okay. And Larry said, relax. You just kind of relax without relaxing, of course. Yes. So we had a super interpreter, Bobby, Nguyen Van Viet, and um, he and himself if he talked to you, you met Bobby. Right. Yeah. When he talked to you, he would tell everybody that he was from New York. <laughs> he, the incoming soldiers believed that he was from New York. Yeah. <laughs> His English was impeccable. And he was an incredible interpreter. Um, he was he was uh, on the ground whenever I got injured, right next to Gene Pugh, immediately. I mean, when I opened my eyes, the first two people I saw, the only two people I saw were those guys. So anyway, uh, after we ran a few missions together, Larry was had to return to the States for some reason. And then Colonel Warren came to me and said, Sergeant Van Deer said, you're replacing Sergeant Trimble. Uh, he's going back to the States. And I said, uh, are you sure? I don't know if I'm ready for this. He said, Larry said, you're ready. Sergeant Trimble said, you're ready. So I got excited, but I was so nervous. I couldn't tell you. I was just really nervous. And I worked with the team. I sat down and talked to the team. I think one of the very, very most important things that I learned on the first mission with them was, okay, I have all the special forces training in my head. There's a certain part of going into an AO where you're either going to make it out or you're not. So, and that's where you hit the nail on the head and you said listening. It took me a while because there were t several times I said, okay, I look at the map and I said, we're going to go set up here. We're going to go over to this direction. And so I turned around and I looked at the team and they looked at me like I had two heads. <laughs> so, and I asked Bobby, I said, what's up? He said, they think we should go this way. I said, well, okay. And it really made me nervous. Sure. But I said, why? And so the Ton, one of the really big guys I had, went over and pulled a piece of tree bark apart. 
He pulled out a North Vietnamese cigarette butt. I had no clue. I would have never seen that. If he, being that he served, all of them served with the North Vietnamese, he knew everything. No kidding. At that point in time, I just thought, thank you, Lord. This is, this, this is a team that I'm going to really depend on. Yeah, the Lord sent you a little bonus package. Uh, I believe he did. Yeah. Because I don't think I would have been equipped enough to not handle something like that. Did he tell you what that was? The fact that there's a cigarette butt in... It's one of the things that when they were on the move, if they had to hurry up and move out and do something, they had to snuff them out so they would hide it. Okay. Just so Americans, if the Americans happen to come through, that they would never see it. Right. So, and I never saw it. Yeah. I had, didn't have a clue what to look for. And I had no reason to think about that. But after that, I had a reason to think about everything. Had a reason to listen to everything. Sure. So the the team was amazing. I listened to them 100% of the time. And I think probably uh, when uh, Larry left, I was assigned uh, Phil Quinn from the 1st Airborne Division. I mean, 1st uh, <coughs> SF and, and uh, Okinawa came over, he and Bill Werther and a few other guys from the 1st. Yeah, first. they came over TDY. Yeah, TDY, exactly. Snake bite teams. So Phil was assigned to me, to RTFs, not me. So we got to know each other, and, and I really felt comfortable with Phil. Um, you know, the, being in the field, for me, a really big guy kind of made me nervous because I'm a little guy. I can hide behind anything. <laughs> I don't know. You're right down to what they did. Exactly. They were yeah. no different between yeah. me and the enemy. <laughs> So uh, Phil was pretty good, pretty good size. Oh guy. yeah, and but he was amazing. He was a great soldier, and along uh, during that time, we just came back from a mission, and we had to be extracted by strings. And then when we came out, uh, I think sometimes it's hard to for someone to imagine if you've never come out on ropes before, what it's like. Yeah. So what what we're talking about here is. You're under. You're in contact with the enemy, and you have to get out. You call for an extraction. The helicopters can't land, so they come and hover, drop 150 foot ropes, and by that time, did they have the McGuire rig? It was just still the straight rope with a sandbag, and you clicked in with your Swiss seat. We, everybody had their own rope. You know how to make it like this here. You pull it between your legs, take your D ring, hook up with Swiss seat. Swiss seat. Oh yeah. And when they drop the lines. And you know very well yourself, uh, if they, you have two helicopters coming in, the first when you begin your mission, you're the first man to hit the ground, no matter what. Right. Being a one-zero, that's your responsibility. And on the way out, our responsibility was what? Last man. Last man. So when the first <clears throat> helicopter came in, I hooked my guys up to it, and then the second one came in, and I was the last one to hook up, and I was on the bottom of the string, and the crew chief looked out and I gave him a thumbs up they took off well I don't know if people realize this or remember this but a Huey once he's hovering and he gets up high enough he wants to take off he dips the nose right and then he comes up like that <laughs> and that's how it was well he dipped me about six feet into the jungle oh. he drug me through the jungle and I was upside down holding on to my weapon my, my rucksack and I had a vine around my neck 
And I thought, okay, it's either going to pop my next break or, or I'm going to get out of this somehow. Well, <clears throat> I got out of it somehow. I didn't do anything, but I, it just flipped me around. And when it flipped me around, he brought me out of the jungle, and then I flipped back around. So I was feet down this time, not heads down. And I was hanging on to everything. And we were they were flying us up about, what, 5,000 feet normally. Right. And, and you're, of course, all this is while you're under enemy fire. Yes. And the enemy's shooting at you and the helicopters. <clears throat> and the biggest worry sometimes is like, not the biggest worry. The biggest worry for me was I didn't think they were going to hit us. I am afraid they hit the helicopter. Right. Because that's the biggest target that they have, trying to shoot a little guy swinging under a rope. <laughs> You're not that good. But sometimes it felt like the green tracers are going right between my legs. I was worried about my manhood. Well, I'm lucky I never had that issue about worrying about it. They didn't even get that close. I went right by my ear, and I thought I was going to lose my ears a couple of times. Oh, my God. And yeah. I, and that pop, when that AK-47 round comes over your head, it's like a firecracker. Oh, yeah. Is that right? Yes, sir. So, uh, and they were whizzing by. and Anyway, we got up high enough, and we were, we were headed to – I had no idea where we were going. And so they took us into Ben Het. Ben Het was the right on the border between Laos, Cambodia, and that was the number one A team, the number <clears throat> one hit A team at the time. Right. So when it was down to two core, by the way. So yeah, you so guys are really deep. Yep. Did you launch out of FB two at the time? No, no. We launched out of Fub, out of Quang uh, Tri, I think. Okay, sure. So. Uh, but anyway, just trying to get, you know how it is. If you call in for a prairie fire emergency, and they say. You're just glad to get out. Just get me the hell out, and we don't care where you take me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, and I don't care who comes in as long as yeah. you get us out. <clears throat> so um, we had no clue where we were going. And when we were making our approach, the first helicopter was already there. And that was, of course, from a long distance. I was trying to see what I could see. The... Uh, I could see that there was nobody in the base. In the perimeter, I could barely recognize uh, M60 placement set up and a few men here and there, not Americans, indige, and maybe one or two, I don't know. But I noticed that they were run out of a bunker. They would grab the guys and help them down, unhook them and drag them into a bunker. And, you know, when you fly for a long time in a Swiss seat, everything goes dead. Yeah, your circulation is cut off. You have, you can't feel anything. You can't feel your legs. And I was, for a while, <laughs> beating my boots together to try to keep some circulation going. Yeah. So, ultimately, <coughs> excuse me, uh, it went. There's nothing I can do. But when they flew over, this is... This is a part of being in Green Beret that is exciting. That is, that no matter where you serve, no matter what team you're on, no matter what part of Vietnam you came from or what your mission is, they run right out and they'll help you. They'll save you. They'll do whatever necessary to make sure you stay alive. So when we got off, we got unhooked. Of course, me being the last one, I was the first one. And this, and you couldn't walk. 
No, I couldn't walk at all. Yeah. I was just like sitting there. And this big E7 grabbed me here <laughs> and drug me into the bunker. <laughs> and I, he goes, I, welcome to Ben Hat. Yeah, he said, oh my God. keep your head down. Don't stick it out until we tell you to. Yeah. And he said, get your legs. Once you get your legs, let me know. So we sat in there and drank a ton of water. I think little things, little things that people don't really realize, when you're on the ground, you're completely soaking wet with sweat, completely. I mean, head to toe. Sure. Your boots are even wet. Yeah. But when they extract you and you're 5,000 feet in the air. Then you're freezing. I thought I was going to die of frostbite. <laughs> it was so cold. And then, uh. of course, they took us up and got us out and... It was the next day before they could get a couple of ships in, or one ship in. To get and again, out. we're talking about Ben Head, which was one of the most active A camps in Ever. terms of being under siege for months. Yes. And we even had teams that came out of FOB2 that did some missions in support of the A camp there, try to get intel reports, mm-hmm. to try to get a POW for more intel. And they even went to different weapon sites that were, had the anti-aircraft sites. And uh, that was part of, and so you go into an A camp that's under siege. And it's not your average A camp. No. Not, not at all. Not at all. But that was the thing that you just mentioned, that, that if you got a, a prisoner snatch mission, that would would have been my place I would like to go and start from there, get pick their brains for a long time, get as much intel as I could and be able to launch. You but, just really want that five-day or an R and a $100 bonus. Come on, you can't kid me. I, I was working at it. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work all the time. So um, You and me both. <laughs> well, we never gave up trying, did we? No. So from there, um, we finally get back to stand down. We'd stand down, which is... Um, it was like heaven. Get back to. And your what was quarters. that? Do you remember what that mission was? What it was for? Yeah, we were. That was uh, <clears throat> the same thing. This one was to watch uh, uh, military vehicles coming down down the Ho Chi Minh down Trail. Down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So we set up a long time, and you know, you got this little ashy Pentax camera, and you take right. nine million pictures. And uh, along the way, uh, we discovered a, a little training facility. And it was for them to, you know, it was more for the Viet Cong working in that area. Or, or the NVA. Pat Lao, Pat sure. Lao, or the NVA working with them. And, and they had just dismantled it. And so I was, in, I was in a hurry to get out of there because we'd already seen movement. And we'd seen the movement. And we knew it was coming our way. So you'd been on the ground for a few days by now. Been on the ground for four days. Okay. And it was time to get out. Yeah. So... We moved as quickly as we could to as safe areas we could find. We tried to get some high ground. And once we got mid-high ground, and we got on one side we got compromised. So we, we were taking enemy fire. And from, from that, we determined that it was just, just a, a roving patrol because we were able to just keep our heads down, slide around, and then set up a couple guys, move, had Quinn move the team up, and a couple got, came down a trail. Well, we, we had no choice. We eliminated our, our trackers. So Indeed, yeah. So once we eliminated them, then we joined the team really quick, and we, we moved out. And then I got word that the uh, 
slicks were coming in to pick us up. So, and the, finally the pilot, you know how it is, they contact you. And you're talking to the pilot, and he said, what color smoke do you have? And I told him, I said, I have red and yellow. He said, pop red smoke. And I said, okay. Normally I would pop, we had red, yellow, and green. And he asked me, he said, do you have green? I said, no, I don't. He said, well, pop the red. So I did, and they spotted us. He said, I got you. And he, uh, they swooped down, picked us up, and took me through a ride through the jungle. And <laughs> Ricochet, pinball time. <laughs> exactly. The so human you, pinball. <laughs> get, get back to base camp. Get yes, back sir. to the camp. And they tell me now they're going to sign a 1-2 which was Gene Pugh. I said, okay. So somebody brought Gene over to introduce him to me. He said, brought him over and said, I want you to meet Tony Van Dyer's one zero. And he said, Tony, Gene's going to join the team. I said, okay. And Gene looked at me really funny. And so we spoke a while. We got acclimated. Until we get acclimated the next day, I was tired. We The next day, uh, Gene came over to me and said, you know, I almost asked them for another team when I saw your face. I had two black eyes, had a rope burn, <laughs> about two inches thick around my neck. Right, it was right. bloody and raw. And uh, He said, I didn't know if I wanted to run any missions with you. <laughs> but thank God he did. Yeah. Gene's a fabulous soldier. So he joined um, you and Phil in. He did. Third American. He, did he become your uh, RTO then? Yes. Okay. And that was his um, MOS. Sure. So, uh, and we ran some missions together, and, and we had this really unusual mission where they sent us to, to Thailand, to an Air Force base in Thailand, to where we would be deep, where we'd be briefed by a, an Air Force colonel. And he already knew the nature of our mission. We knew the nature of our mission. And for me, he, he kind of knew too much. And then the way we had it designed, we wanted to go, only wanted one helicopter to take us in. That's all. And the reason why they did it, sometimes you had bad weather. You couldn't launch with the, so they take helicopters from NKP, fly east and search into the target area exactly. that way. Okay. Exactly what it was. But he divided the team up. What? And I was really angry with him. And I said, no. I said, We're not gonna, I'm not going to run a mission like this. I said, how can I? How can you take seven men and put three here and four there? And a jolly green giant, we can all fit in that helicopter, no problem. Well, the fuel capacity with that weight load and the blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, I was still young and I was really getting angry. <laughs> I had to really be careful about my tone. So after the second time, he warned me about my tone. I shut up, and so we, we, the next morning we boarded the two helicopters, and we, it, the mission was so far, at the time, so I heard, and you know you can take what you hear with a grain of salt, when I heard that it was the most furthest northern mission, and we had to fly into Leghorn, Leghorn. Are you familiar with Leghorn? Oh, of course. And then sometimes they had, because when you lost Men KP, you had to refuel at the CIA fuel dumps. That's Leghorn. It was, that may not have been Leghorn. Because the, uh, the reason why I can tell you that is we did it. And same we thing. Landed, the same thing. Yeah. And we 
were en route to a target that took over two hours, and they landed for a refuel. And exactly I said, what happened to us. I said, who are you? He says, I'm not here. He says, just like you, you're not here. And that was the way. So, but it wasn't Leghorn because Leghorn was too close to the tri-border area. We went into Leghorn. You, you, they had refuel there? Yep, they did. Oh, my God. I okay. Had, we went into Leghorn. Um, a funny story that back in <laughs> Dallas, 100 years later, I run into a guy's name, um, Bob uh, Singleton. He was the CIA at that Leghorn. No. Yeah, in a small world. Anyway, uh, we went in, we refueled, and we were gone, took off. And we had, of course, as you wear, we had, you have a primary and an alternate target, an LZ. So when we flew over the LZ, which you can't see on the maps, you know how sure. bad the maps could be. Well, the primary LZ was nothing but tree stumps. And there was no way you could set a helicopter down. And when I looked over, I looked at the pilot, and the pilot just looked at me, and he shook his head very softly. And I said, okay, abort this. We can go to the secondary. So when we get to the secondary, myself and Bobby, we saw a couple uh, Pathalau. Oh, Pathalau. Pathalau. Yeah. And we we knew that being so close, the NVA would had to be very close with them. So I aborted the mission. I hated to because the long distance, the time spent in putting that together was awful. Sure, but also was going to get put my team in jeopardy. Yeah, you're the one zero. No, so when I aborted the mission, the Covey had the second pilot drop the team and the LZ anyway. No, uh, I was furious, and then I told the pilots, "You fly me over and set me down." Well, as we were getting ready to bank to go over there, there were like four in the four more guys come out with their AK forty sevens in the distance. We could see them very well, and uh, their fear was, of course, they would have a rocket launcher. And uh, I understood. He said, "Well, I, I can't. This is as close as I can get," and I took my car 15 and I barely tapped his helmet I said no you've got to put me over here <laughs> so gentle persuasion well I know I mean I didn't I, yeah. told, I couldn't reach him to, yeah you know so and I kept yelling at him no one heard me he didn't hear me that's why I did that and then he looked and you can tell he didn't like that but he floated he kind of made the ship slide did a sideways movement yeah yeah and, and when he did I looked out and it was all elephant grass and I said, okay, here. And so he wouldn't go too low, so he stopped. And so I, I jumped off things higher than that as a kid. Sure. And the jump school, of course, you do the PLS. But not with all that weight on your back. No, not with that. No weapon, PRC-25 and all yeah. that crap. So I jumped out, and I had a specific place I was going to go. And the... Elephant grass was flat, you know, from the blades. Right. Well, that, from a prop you, wash. Yeah, but you couldn't see was that it was on a slope. And oh. on the way down, I hit my right ankle, buckled, and broke the tallest bone and pulled the ligaments and tendons out from my, all the way up to my knee. And it knocked me out for, I don't know, 10 seconds, 5 seconds. Oh, man. And when I come to, I was worried about where, how close are the enemy to me, 
And when I opened my eyes, then the first thing I saw was Bobby, and then I saw Gene. And um, they immediately came back, the, the Covey told the second helicopter to go back in and pick up. So the, the, what really, really angered me the most was, you know, the second team, second part of your team doesn't have a communication which was not a very smart thing in those days, but they didn't have a PRC-25. They didn't have any way to com- communicate with Covey. or the hel- Well, they didn't. I did. The one zeros were responsible for that. Right. So um, they dropped down, dropped the basket down, and Gene and Bobby helped me load on the damn thing, and I was really, really angry. So they pulled us up, took us back to NKP. And once we got back to NKP, we had to wait there a couple of days because when I got on the helicopter, my leg looked like a ankle looked like a bowling ball. They had to take a knife and cut my boot off. Oh. So um, we get back, and then they send me over to the Da Nang Hospital, where. And they got to the second part of the team out okay. Yes, the second part of the team under got enemy it. fire. Under enemy fire, very light, light enemy. Uh, small weapons fire so they got out fine they got me out fine and um, when we get to Da Nang well I mean they take me to the hospital and that was the end of my solid career and I was I could have easily been court-martialed for the things that I called the doctor and told him send me back to my compound the guys would come and pick me up, and I would recuperate there. He said, no. He said, this is going to be a year of recuperation for you. I said, no, it won't. And he said, you don't know me. I said, it's not going to be like that. And so I ended up in Camp Oji, Japan, and I'm there for a couple months. And when I'm, after a while, I'm ambulatory, not too long, and going to therapy all the time. And, and you had torn a tendon? Tore a tendon. Oh, my God. And pulled the ligament detached a little bit from my... You know. So... Um, you know, bruises like that, and they're ugly. I mean, oh. like I said, the swelling, everything's ugly. Right. Your elbow. So <laughs> um, when you look at it, it's really, it looks really bad. It wasn't as bad as, you know, for me it wasn't as bad. So long story short, from there, they medevac me back to the States. And they sent me to, in fact, here in Texas, they sent me to uh, – they have a helicopter school. Used to have a helicopter school here. Um, let me think. Um, Fort Walt, Fort Walt, yeah, Fort Walters. And then from there, they sent me back to Bragg. Is that right? So from Bragg, they um, sent me to the 82nd, and I said, "No, that's not going to work." <laughs> and so they didn't want to let me go. So by now, how's your leg working? After that, good enough. It was working fine, and I wouldn't tell anybody anyway. I and so that injury occurred before August twenty third, sixty eight. No, it occurred in February of sixty nine. February, okay. No, so this February, is after after the attack on the or, camp, yeah, March sixty nine. March, okay. Yeah. So, um, in all my efforts, I had a hard time. I went over, and Sergeant Major, Command Sergeant Major Leal was the Command Sergeant Major of SF. And I went over to see him. 
great guy. I mean, he was the best. He said, you're SF, you're coming back over here, and I'm going to make sure you get over here. Well, he had a hard time. 82nd needed troops. They wanted experienced troops, and they had a hard time letting me go. And I called my dad, and I said, Pop, call the congressman, this friend of my dad, so he called him next thing I know. <laughs> the commanding general of 82nd had me before him, and he was... Really? Yes. It, truthfully, he said, why didn't you go through channels? I said, I went, you want to see the stack of paperwork I put in? And you talk to your battalion commanders. And so, long story short, he said, well, we're going to miss your soldier of your quality, but I understand you signed up for SF, and that's where you belong. And um, I'll take care of the other part myself. So... They had orders for me cut that day, and I was on my way back over to see Sergeant Major Lil. And when I see him, he said, you're signed to Charlie Company the 7th. So I was signed to— Welcome to 7th Group. Right, C-235, <clears throat> and that's where I spent the rest of my time. Did you spend any time in South America or Panama? Not at that time. That Things like that occurred after the military, so— <laughs> well, let's talk about the rest of your time in SF and then move to the next phase of your career there, sir. Well, SF was the best part of my life at that time. I mean, for a lot of us. You know, and it, it, for two years, it just haunted me every day, go back. Not to mention the friends calling me and say, you know, what are you doing? You need to get back over here. And I, I almost dropped everything so many times and to head to Fort Bragg. Uh, I just, I never, never got around to it. So anyway, I, I became a full-fledged civilian. And uh, So what's the time frame here? This was in 71. And you now, come back to, now come back to Oklahoma or what? Well, I went to Tulsa and, and got a job with a, with a clothing manufacturer to be a sales rep. And I would travel the territory. So I would have to move to Dallas, and it would be my base headquarters out of the apparel mart here. So I, I came over to Dallas, and uh, once I got acclimated to the city, I didn't want to go any other place. I mean, Dallas was a great place to live. The uh, people were great, and it was uh, just a whole new phase of my life. The... There's, you, you can't compare phases. I can't compare phases between what I'd been through. And I, beginning another phase, people ask me, what did you do? And, right. Uh, and I, and every, I told everybody, they say, what branch of service were you? I'd say the Army. Well, what did you do? And I thought I was a cook. And that was my story <laughs> from then on. I, I never told anybody the truth. Yeah, because we couldn't. You no, know, there was nothing to say because, you know, once— you say, well, I was in SF. Everybody wants to ask you a million questions. So uh, I was advised on the way out, signing the, the agreement, right. as you know, uh, that I would never divulge anything. So I never did. And I never told anybody anything for many years. I still haven't. The only thing I ever talked about any any part of my missions was with you, SF guys, and the only people I, I'm at home with. 
Or at the reunion. Or, or at the reunion. For Special Operations Association, indeed. You can't beat that. It no. took me forever. Clyde Jason's here, sent me paperwork, and begged me to come. And <laughs> <laughs> finally, Gene talked me into it, and I went and joined. And, indeed. And um, got to see Bill Werther and everybody. So to play the tape back a little bit, I assume that if you weren't there for the night of August 23rd, your team was either at a launch site or in the target then, because you were there during that period of time. I was gone. I, no, I, I actually didn't arrive in the compound to the day, two or three days after that. No kidding. The co- compound was a mess. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, so, no, I didn't, I didn't know what happened. So just for, our, again, our listeners, this August 23rd, uh, 68 is when the camp got hit by a sapper attack. They planted a year. 16 Green Beret KIAs that night. That's still the uh, most historic loss of life in the SF community since uh, Dorda's history. One one look at that camp a week later, you can still see the remnant, remnants of the disaster. It was in, in your mind, you replay that in your mind, you visualize how it happened, what happened, you hear all these stories, and it's like, God... Why did they get me here a week earlier <laughs> so I could have helped? <laughs> but then also I say, damn, I'm glad I wasn't here for that. So Absolutely. Uh, well, I had to go back. I was just curious about that little footnote time because mm-hmm. the FOB4 was a big deal for all of us at the time. FOB4 I was at FOB1, heard about it. I was scary enough. I was glad I wasn't there. That's what go in the miss in terms of surviving. Yeah. And then, so you're selling apparel? Well, I was starting that, and then I came upon another venture that I was helping somebody with. And just so happens, coming from an Italian family, my grandparents made wine. And I met this Italian guy. He was, uh, we, we became very good friends. And from there, I got involved in the wine business. and. Stayed in it for 30 years. So is that what took you to South America? Nope. <laughs> That's just another story altogether that we'll hold for another day. Uh-oh. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, after being away from everybody for a long time, sure. I never stayed connected to anybody until Gene one day called me out of the blue and he said, are you Tony Bandier that was blah, blah, blah? I said, yeah, who wants to know? He said, Tony, this is Gene Pugh. Well, your and, first face you saw when you woke up. Yep. So I was really quite surprised to hear from him. He said he lived in Dallas. And we got together, and he got me into the association, Chapter 31. And then I saw the member list, and then Fred Zabotowski walks in. And I look over, I said, that looks like Zabotowski to me. He said, it is. So I went Where over. was this? Here in Dallas. No kidding. Fred lived here. Yeah, because Fred Zabatowski earned the Medal of Honor yeah. 68 out of Contum. No, exactly. From Trenton, New Jersey, a fellow Trentonian. <laughs> wow. I oh, yeah, we, we were like, I, I didn't know him in Trenton, but I met yeah. him afterwards, yeah. after the war. But, yeah, he's a Trenton native. Well, So he, you met Fred. Yeah, so Fred... Uh, and we sat down, we visited and talked about, you know, some things back. He's one of the people you talk to, as you know what I mean. Sure. And had you talked to him? Did you know him beforehand? No, I knew of him. We, oh, cro- yeah. we crossed we all knew paths who he was. at one point. 
Okay, it, sure. And we talked about that, and we didn't, we didn't even know that. So, uh, now, Fred was, he was my, one of my heroes. Absolutely. And he, uh, he, uh, he was very calm. And talking to Bill Werther, Bill told me that all the hell he went through when he went back to the first Special Forces group that, you know, they had a, a MOH and they're praying him around like he's a new toy or something. And it was hard for Fred. Yeah. Fred, he, he didn't take it too well. But when he got out, he was, he was pretty straight and a really good guy. And um, I remember he told me, he said, Tony, I'm, I'm going go to have to go back to Bragg. And I asked him if it was related to the military. He said, no, I, I've got to go take care of my son. So he went back to Bragg to take care of his son. Oh, no kidding. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, he was one of our clear legends. That's absolutely well. No doubt. And Bob Howard, when I first, when I was, uh, I don't know what it was. It was between my third or fourth or whatever mission. Then they sent a team. They sent R.T. Asman another team to CCC. And they told me to check in for some things I needed over to the supply sergeant. Supply sergeant. So I went over there, and, <laughs> and this E-7 comes out, and, and um, he said, I'm Sergeant Howard. And I said, I'm Sergeant Bandiera. And he said, well, what do you need? I said, really, I don't know. I don't have a mission yet. And he said, well, you'll get one shortly. And when you do, let me know. And uh, all the time I spent a week there, we didn't have a mission. So I wanted to strap hang with him. You know, I had, he already had everything set up. So I, I didn't strap hang with him. <laughs> but he was, um, I mean, he was anything but a Medal of Honor winner to me. When you're just, just an average Joe and sure. a, a supply sergeant. And that's where he... That's where he was working when he earned a Medal of Honor. He was exactly. trapped hanging with the team. Yeah, exactly. He had gone out two or three other times, mm -hmm. and he'd been put in for the Medal of mm -hmm. Honor twice. The third time, he, he got it. Yeah. He, he was an extraordinary person in his own right. He, he and Fred were two different opposite. One from Alabama and one from New Jersey. New Jersey. Yeah, city slicker. And, uh, <laughs> but without doubt, two of the most focused combat veterans anybody could ever meet oh yeah and on top of that two wonderful gentlemen you know once they all the all the ghosts and all the if they got out of their head uh, all the demons and devils that bothered them for so long and they they were great people well yeah and with bob howard there are guys that we've interviewed who said that when they were going through ranger training, they had this guy that was 20 years older than them who outran them. <laughs> he ran their young asses into the ground. That was Bob Howard as, as a ranger trainer. No, I believe it. Oh, yeah. He was a never, no quit, 100% military guy. Absolutely. He was an incredible believer in special forces and all that went with it. Sure. Being a ranger, everything was, whatever he did, he wanted to do everything 100%, like everybody normally does, SF people do. Sure. Then Bob could somehow, he could find another way to get to the next notch. He could climb the next hill a little, a little <laughs> quicker and different than other people. <laughs> Absolutely. 
So looking back, was there one or two missions that stick out in your mind, your worst, other than breaking, have your tendons pulled, <laughs> torn? Well, getting flipped around and going through the jungle upside down from the helicopter. Being a human pinball. Yeah, yeah. that was uh, <laughs> that was memorable. I'll never forget that. And while under enemy fire. And, yeah, we were all under fire. Absolutely. And like I said, my biggest worry was the helicopter getting hit. Sure. But we got out of range. Because how many times know, we had lost people that way? You know, how many times have we had people go on their first mission and get hit at the LZ, turn around, get on the ship, and then get shot? Yeah, we mm-hmm. have a member now that's in a wheelchair. He got shot right in the spine. Never had a chance to hit the ground. Oh, never had a chance to even fire his weapon. But when he jumped out, they took they took fire. He turned around, jumped back in, and got shot right in the back. Wow. I mean, how many weird things has happened to, in incidents like that? Insurgents are the worst. Totally the most the dangerous worst. time. Most dangerous time. Normally an extraction can be equally as dangerous, but normally it, you can get your team out of trouble, get them to a safe place or a place that the helicopter can come pick you up and you can be extracted. And hopefully not by ropes, but the, you know, a normal way. Sure. Uh, but no, the there were just a few others. Sure. Well, the guys like the Frenchman, he got pulled out. He had 13 missions, and every mission he was distracted on strings. Do you know, he and I were in the same orders. No. Yes. He called me one day. He said, uh, I hear you're going to go to your first SOA meeting. And I said, yeah. I said, wow, news travels fast. He said, well, he said, would you do me a favor? He said, I can't find my original orders. And I know that you were on my original orders. No. Yeah. And so I looked through all of my personal military things, and I happened to find the orders where Fred and I were on the same deployment. No kidding. Exactly. Oh, wow. Well, and then from there, you're in the wine business. You're a successful entrepreneur. Well. Sir. <laughs> now I'm just enjoying retirement. So. Is that right? Is that yeah. official? Oh, of course, for a long time, for three years now. Three years? And I've been enjoying the, um, have a piece of property that's really super nice, and my wife and I wake up every morning and we see this magnificent view. In the evening, we see this magnificent sunset. Indeed. And we have what, about 100 beautiful white-tailed deer and antelope and axis deer on the property, and they come and go as they please. Indeed. Uh, it's, a, it's a good life. Well, we're at that point, I think, here with your story. Is there anything further you'd like to add or conclude with or any last, last thoughts about uh, our comrades or yourself or your anything that comes to mind before we shut the mics off? <clears throat> no, I just want to say to each person that I had the honor of serving with and being with at any point in time that um, I ran across some of the greatest people. And for me, it, it never seemed like I was an instructor. It never seemed like I was a, a one-zero. I never felt that important about myself. I felt really incredibly honored to be around each one of these guys, each one of these guys that, I, that were my peers. I just looked up to them, and I, I honestly couldn't tell anything 
anything other than that about any one of the individuals I've had the honor to serve with or be around. I, I was grateful to be there. Absolutely. Well, thank grateful you. Grateful to be here. Indeed. Well, that, we, we want to thank all the men and women in our armed services who have fought and bled for our country. We also thank the Border Patrol, law enforcement, first responders, EMT, corrections officers. And uh, I guess the Border Patrol is really under the gun these days, even in a state here in Texas. <laughs> Pretty serious. Absolutely. And as always, we thank Jocko Willink for sponsoring the SOG podcast interviews and for our production and flight costs. And we also want to thank the men and the women who served in the years past, like a good friend, Tony Bandera. We thank you for that service. And we also have to remember and salute the men and women who have not returned from Southeast Asia. Amen. And including that, we today we have 1,579 MIAs from the Vietnam War in Southeast Asia, 50 of which are Green Berets that died in the Sikh War, and with 83 air aviators who died supporting us. So we always salute them, and God bless America. God bless America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.